You know, the story of Pinocchio is one of the, you know, a child's most beloved uh, children's tales. Uh, that is, of course, until you read the original version. Uh, apparently, the original Adventures of Pinocchio was written by a guy named Carlo Collati, in, uh, published in 1881. Uh, and it tells a much darker story of a rebellious little brat uh, who causes little Geppetto all kinds of grief. And it's only through the grace of the Blue Fairy that curbs the mischief, mischief, mischievous boy's behavior by causing his nose to grow every time that he lies. Well, after one particular lie that extends Pinocchio's nose even further, uh, the little marionette asked the fairy how it was that she knew he was lying. I think her response is fascinating. She says, lies, my dear boy, are found out immediately because they are of two sorts. There are lies that have short legs and lies that have long noses. You lie, your lie, as it happens, is one of those that has a long nose. It's an amazing distinction because she's basically saying lies that have short legs are ones that, can, that can't carry you very far before the truth begins to outrun you. In other words, the consequences will catch up with someone who lies with short legs. But lies that have long noses, these are the ones that are obvious to everyone except for the person who's telling the lie. In other words, they're lies that make the liar themselves look ridiculous. And in either case, you know, the, the story of Pinocchio, I find, as a fairy tale, is fascinating because it shows how much lying robs us of our humanity. And this morning, I simply want to entertain the question, where did this old Italian author get an idea like that? Well, as it turns out, we've been looking this semester at the Ten Commandments and God's revelation of this moral arc of the universe that terminates in his law but is much more than that. It's an expression of his character, telling them what he is like. And so we've received God's mind on everything from rest to private property, everything from human happiness to sexuality. So this morning, though, we come to the truth about truth and the power of our words. As it turns out, when God created man, he did so by his powerful word. And when he did so, he embedded inside the image of God that's in every single man, a relationship to words that goes straight to the core of who you are. That's my premise. If you think about it, God from all eternity has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this perfectly mutual and eternal fellowship with one another. In other words, they've been communicating. We also find that when it comes for God to create the world, he does so through his word. I find it not a mistake that when in the end, God himself shows up in human flesh in John chapter one, verse one, he is described as the word dwelling among his people. Okay, so doesn't it stand to reason then that if we are created in the image of a God like that, when we begin to process our humanity in terms of our speaking, our words, our tongues, that there's something that we would discover that is absolutely fundamental to our existence. Something that's so innate and so pervasive that when we see that aspect of our community, it's a major piece of the puzzle of figuring out who we are and what our real identity is. I think this is what James chapter three, verses four and five is getting at. When James compares the tongue, which is an image for words, to the rudder of a ship, he says, think about how many trees it takes to create this large ship. And yet this tiny little thing called a rudder 
is what guides the whole thing. That's your tongue, he says. It is defining your life for you. So much so that the whole direction of your life can be set by that. I think that's kind of a big premise coming from James. Is it true? Well, in trying to figure out the answer to that question, I'm going to look at under three headings as per usual. The powerful tongue, the destructive tongue, and then the healing tongue. Okay? Power, destruction, and healing. First of all, let's consider for a second just how much the Bible says our tongues are powerful. Um, you know, a number of years ago, uh, I got for a little while in a phase where I couldn't do any channel surfing without stopping at C-SPAN's broadcast of British Parliament. Y'all ever done this? It's amazing to watch and see how the Brits do government. Uh, and the Bible commentator uh, Colin Smith explains that when, when, when these members are in session, the members are allowed to have all sorts of fun with each other you know, through caricaturing, through mocking, gainsaying, or appealing to the, uh, to the chair, speaker of the house. But the one thing you cannot do in parliament is call someone a liar. Apparently, the word liar has been deemed to be unparliamentary language. And the members, you know, obviously will sometimes use a little bit of ingenuity to say it without actually saying it. I think of the example of a Winston Churchill who one time referred to someone's statement as terminological inexactitude for lying. But they got to be real careful to follow the speaker's instructions or else they risk getting booted from the assembly. What's the point? Well, to say something about someone's views, about their opinions, about their, their policy suggestions, that's one thing. But when you call someone a liar... You've touched at the deepest parts of their personhood. Why? I think the reason why is because the Bible describes our words as just that powerful. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruits. <clears throat> Tim Keller uh, talks about how funny it is, that, um, or how strange it is, and what a great travesty it is, that one of the nursery rhymes that we taught our children growing up was, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No, they absolutely will hurt you. <laughs> words can be incredibly destructive to our souls. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus comes along and says, every human being will give an account for every idle word. Why would there be that judgment attached to it if there wasn't that much power behind our words? One of my favorite illustrations from the Bible about this comes from Genesis 25, where the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, are fighting over the birthright. You remember this story? Old Isaac has decided that it's time for him to pass away and deliver his blessing. So he tells the oldest of the two, Esau, to go out and prepare a blessing dinner. Well, while he's gone, Jacob, in cahoots with his mother, sneaks in, pretends to be Esau, and Isaac accidentally pronounces the blessing over Jacob instead of Esau. Well, Esau comes back in, and when he realizes what happens, he begins to beg to his father that he would bless him too. But old Isaac looks and says, I can't. I've already spoken the blessing to Jacob. There's nothing left for you. Now, that's a weird story, because when I was reading as a kid, I remember thinking the entire time, well, why, when Isaac realized what had happened, did he not just say, Oh, what, wait, wait, what? That was Jacob? No, no, I take it all back. <laughs> the reason why I couldn't do that because, is because he lived in a culture that put weight behind words. He understood that you don't just take things back because the truth is that that culture valued the power of words. 
And so I think it's worth us actually sort of considering the power that our words have. And I think there's at least three ways in which our words have power. The first thing our words have power is over the people to whom we speak them. You ever thought about this? Words can start wars. <laughs> words can actually bring sadness and pain and depression, maybe even suicide to someone that we speak them to. Words have power even to frame someone's personality through the affirmation or through the discouragement of certain aspects we create who someone is. Proverbs 11, 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Wow. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. In other words, you have the ability with your words to rob someone of an essential component of their lives using dangerous words. And vice versa, you can build them up using the exact same words. Secondly, though, our words don't just have power over the people we speak them to. Our words have power over our communities. And by the way, this is the original context for the command. And we read it. We are not to bear false witness. That's talking about lying in a court of law and doing injustice because of it. And so what's being said there is, where there is no truth in a culture... There's no justice. I mean, imagine a society that has no sense of repayment for wrongs that are done. Because that's what's created when a culture loses trust in one another. You lose justice as a whole. The very foundations of civilized society begin to erode. Let me push that a little further. Because you realize 2020 <laughs> has had a lot of accusations about injustices that are done. Has it not? from both sides of the political aisle, from every class and every system. And I do think that there's a lot of people, especially among uh, Bible-believing people, who look at those conversations as somehow a little bit, I don't know, extraneous to Christian conversation. But guys, it's not. <laughs> the Christian life, the ninth commandment, sets in front of us this ideal that in order to have an orderly society, you have to have fair judicial balances. And because that's the case, regardless of what you think about where you land on whether something was or was not an injustice, it's an entirely Christian conversation to talk about it. That's not extraneous to what we consider in God's people. A Christian has to be about those conversations because our words affect the, con the community around us. Thirdly, our words not only have power over the people we speak them to and the community around us, but they also have power over us as we speak them. I find this going to be one of the more fascinating aspects of this. Our words fashion us while we're giving them away to someone. You know, James chapter 3 is saying that our words can affirm and create and even destroy the things inside of us. They're so powerful. Favorite illustration of all time on this happened when my wife and I started to attend uh, wedding rehearsal dinners. I've used this illustration before. And invariably at the rehearsal dinner, they would get to the part where the toasts would come up to toast the, the bride and groom. And invariably the sort of tough groomsman would stand up and he would always try to cover it with a few jokes at the beginning. Oh, I could tell you a lot of stories about this guy. But then all of a sudden his words would turn to something that was affectionate. <laughs> and he would say something like, I'll tell you what, there's been times where this guy has been there for me. And then all of a sudden you watch this little switch flip where he would be like, <clears throat> and he would always say the same thing. <clears throat> I didn't see this coming. <laughs> they never see it coming. But what's happening in that moment? 
What's happening in that moment is suddenly the words that they are speaking, the thoughts that are living in his head have now been clothed in words and suddenly it comes home to them. They become real to him. They become substantial to him. And suddenly they begin to cry. Why? Because our words have the power to come home to us through the very power of speaking them. I wonder how many of you have ever been in a conversation with someone where you were irritated at someone else, so you decided to vent <laughs> to them about the other person? Have you ever noticed that by the time you get to the end of that conversation, you can be so steamed that you were never nearly as angry as you were until you started talking about it? What happened? That's your words having power over you, accelerating the amount of irateness that you have. How about this one? I remember when I was in grad school, when I would study and I would look at a textbook and it'd be like, okay, these are just words on a page. I have no idea what I'm even reading. But then I'd get into a study group. This ever happened, college students? You get in a study group and suddenly you talk it out and eventually it's like, it clicks. I've got it. What is that? It's the power of our words. They not only affect the people you say them to, they not only affect the community, but they shape you as well. That's the power of our words. Secondly, though, we got to look at the destructive tongue. That's the powerful tongue. What about the destructive tongue? Well, God, realizing the potential of this thing called our tongue, <laughs> dedicates an entire command to its control. And you don't have to re reflect a whole lot before you realize there's a lot for to be protected. You know, John 8, 44, Jesus describes Satan as the father of lies. Satan is a deceiver at his heart, which is why God despises deception in any form. Lack of truthfulness is a repellent to God. And, and so again, from Colin Smith, Bible teacher Colin Smith, he identifies what he calls the, the four stations of lying and how they come with people, how they sort of move in and through people. Step number one, stage number one is what he calls polite lies. I'll give an example of a polite lie. Someone comes up to me and says, hey, Les, did you remember to pray for that thing that I asked you to pray for? To which my response is, I most certainly did. When the truth of the matter is, I hadn't thought about it since the last time you asked me about it. <laughs> Polite lies, right? But there's other way to lie politely. We lie also through what Smith calls word inflation. You know, you ever know anybody who talks about things, everything's the best or everything's the worst? I think we've learned now in our culture that the word awesome just isn't awesome anymore because of its overuse. Polite lies also come through excessive words where we just can't stop talking about it. <laughs> Proverbs 10 verse 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. By the way, that's in the top five verses that terrify Les Newsome in the Bible. The more you talk, the more you cheapen what you say, especially when you're trying to mean it. So you have sort of polite lies. Secondly though, the second stage is what Smith calls flattery. I love his definition of flattery. It cracks me up. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. <laughs> that wasn't funny in the first service either. I literally got pause for laughter in my notes here. And it doesn't, it's not laughed landing. What's so bad about flattery? Can there be something wrong about that? So I said something nice to someone. Well, yeah, it's wrong, especially if you deny the reality to the person you're talking to. Does that make sense? Yeah, granted, I don't want to exchange flattery for brutal, uh, verbal brutality. More on that in just a second. But how much wisdom do I lack in my life because people were not honest with me? That people didn't tell me the truth about myself? Would, would I have, have made different decisions 
Would I have taken a different course in life if people had just been straight up with me? <laughs> when I was in ninth grade, um, I was on the track team. I choose my words carefully. I was on the team. I didn't say that I ran track. <clears throat> but after the season was over, I'll tell you why I was on the track team. Because I wanted to be like my big brother, who was a track star. Very, very successful track athlete. And after that first season sort of came and went, I went up to the coach, Coach D. Baker. He actually passed away last year. God rest his soul. Um, and I went to him and I was going to ask him, Coach, I'm looking for some summer, uh, uh, some summer workouts for myself. Uh, you know, make sure I don't, you know, sort of, <laughs> I don't know, lose my competitive edge or something. I have no idea what I said. And I'll never forget his response. He was like, he said, you know, Les, <clears throat> if I could just be honest with you. He said, you really don't have what I would call um, a lot of natural speed. Um, so I'm sure you could work a little bit, but it's probably not going to help that much. Now you're thinking to yourself, what a cruel thing for someone to say, but it wasn't. You want to know why? Cause I got to quit track, <laughs> which I hated cause I was slow, but it was, it was, there was a grace to come and say any lie, whether it's flattery or otherwise, it demeans a person and tramples on their dignity, robs me of my potential and also keeps me in a dependent posture. Thirdly, we also get something that the third step in the, the, the lies comes exaggeration. I'm not going to torture you with that story I told about the third commandment of my own experience of this, but think about how often we embellish stories about ourselves to make sure that we're in just a little bit better light than we could have been. What are we doing when we do that? We spin ourselves. You know, we sort of make this whole constant nuancing so I can protect my character. How much of my daily conversation is really nothing more than a very sophisticated PR campaign for what you think about me? There's a question for you. Peter Lightheart thinks that the ninth commandment is actually a very fitting word for our social media age. How much lying goes on on social media? Exaggeration. Listen to what he says. He says, we're spun by a whirlpool of rumor and innuendo, false accusation, slander, and libel. People are tried and condemned daily by online lynch mobs. We like or share tweets and Facebook posts, even though we can't possibly confirm their accuracy. Reformer Martin Luther said that the ninth commandment requires us to, quote, put the best construction on everything, unquote, to give others the benefit of the doubt. So we exaggerate the stupidity or malevolence of ideological adversaries so we can score points and win honor in Twitter combat. Officially committed to the Ten Commandments, the church does no better. Christians fire up the digital kindling to burn supposed heretics without due process, humility, or even care. I think there's a case to be made that all social media, because of its ability to kind of curate your feed, lives on lying. It's a feature, not a bug, right? Fourthly and finally, the fourth plank that Smith identifies is just full-fledged gossip. Gossip, he says, is what is spreading a rumor that you can't substantiate or actually probably can't even be substantiated. We gossip when we pass along information and we kind of enjoy it a little bit, the bad report that we're giving about somebody. You ever notice that in your own heart? Where you tell a story about someone else with that little bit of joy on the inside that says, you know, one less person for me to be intimidated by now, isn't it? That's gossip. I do think, obviously, there's something to even be considered when it comes to our own marriages. That when it comes to our words, just because we are thinking something doesn't mean that we have to say it. The Bible is not defending unhealthy venting <laughs> just to make you feel better about yourself. 
Christian counselor and uh, uh, therapist Larry Crabb used to say that in our culture, we have way too much value over self-disclosure as the chief form of intimacy. Think about that for a second. What, what, what does it mean to be intimate with someone? This culture coming up says, well, it's when I tell everything that I'm thinking. Self-disclosure is intimacy. <laughs> and Crabb is like, no, it's not. Sacrifice is the highest form of intimacy, not self-disclosure. And it may be that one of the best sacrifices that you do is not inflicting your partner with the things that are going on inside your head that you know are sinful. It's okay to restrain that tongue sometimes in marriage. We could go on, of course, but that's, that's at least a glimmer inside the destructive tongues. We see the powerful tongue, the destructive tongue. Let's finish, though, with the way in which the tongue can be a healing property, can we? Because honestly, there's three things I think that we can apply in order to deal with our bad words, right? That come from bad hearts, as we'll see in just a second. The first one is this. There is a Christian discipline that God's people learn of forcing, encouraging things to come out of their mouth for people. Uh, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building others up according to their needs, so that it may benefit all who listen. Now, why is that the case? Well, it may be that encouraging words coming out of your mouth may, in fact, encourage you as it does so. In other words, perhaps one of the reasons why I'm hurting so much on the inside is because only hurtful things are coming out of my mouth. And the Bible simply says, hey, don't do that. <laughs> find a way, find a language, find a way to keep it from being awkward where I allow myself to say things that build others up. Second thing, it's not only sort of learning to force good words, but it's also learning to be honest with myself. This is huge. <laughs> You don't root out lying from your soul until you stop telling lies about yourself. And in my experience, those lies really only get unearthed when they're done so in community. I really do think that we need to have a reconsideration over the whole Christmas uh, uh, Christian practice of confession. There used to be a day where all of God's people would go and they would meet with a priest and they would do confession. And a lot of those associations, the Protestant church has walked away from and with very good reason. But it doesn't need to be denied that in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Ooh, that's a Christ Pres word, healed. We like that word around here. I heal when I begin to wrap my sort of fragmented person and the truth about my inconsistencies into words and I go and give them to somebody. That's confession. And it may be that there's people that I need in my life about that. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. It, honestly, it's what, it's what the staff of this church is here for you. <laughs> it used to be commonplace. For some people, if that's a little too public, it may be that I even pay for the privilege with a counselor. Whatever. Do I have a place that I'm exercising where I sort of get honest about myself with someone else? Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, we have to get to the heart of lying. And Jesus is our guide here. In Matthew 12, 4, he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Bad heart, bad words. They come out of each other. And I realize there's a big study to be done on how the heart works. But I think the upshot of what Jesus is saying is, is unless there is a change in the motivational center of your life, 
You can't hope to become somebody who starts telling the truth. Look, look, by way of illustration, let's go back to my lie about whether I prayed for your prayer request. And by the way, I really do pray for your prayer requests. In the last, in the last uh, uh, service, someone came to me and was like, so I guess I shouldn't tell you a prayer request from now on? No, that's not what I'm saying. But here's my question. Why do I do that? Why is there even the temptation to tell you that I prayed for something that, that I actually didn't? I can tell you why. Because I want you to think that I'm a thoughtful person. That's why. Because there is in my heart... And insecurity, there's fear there that you would see what I really am. Because here's the newsflash, people. I am not a thoughtful person. It's time to own it. I'm telling you, I can be as self-absorbed as anybody can be. And what I'm doing is I'm constantly fashioning a better life for myself on my terms. (laughs) I got one of them long nose lies, just like Pinocchio. You want to know why? Because typically everybody knows it. People see it. But here's the thing. That's why I'm galvanized by what went on with Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that little phrase that it says in Matthew 26, verse 39, that while he's there on his knees, he prays to his father, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Do you ever find that weird? And it looked to you a little bit like a moment of weakness from Jesus? That suddenly he would say, yeah, I'm not excited about going to the cross. Why would he say that? (laughs) My argument, though, this morning is is that Jesus at that moment is being fully human by admitting everything that's inside of his heart, including and especially his struggle to obey in that moment. I mean, Jesus could say, let this cut pass because he was perfect, wrestling with God and exposing his anguish, which is essential to his true humanity. You know what that means? It means that no matter where you are this morning, you can come to him. No matter what. And you know what he wants to create? Is he wants to create a community where we can come to each other and have it be okay to own the fact that we're thoughtless people. My favorite quote. I was reminded of this this weekend from Brene Brown, social scientist that she is. She says this. She goes, look, you either walk inside your own story and own it or you walk outside your story and you hustle for your own worthiness. And I love that contrast because the gospel makes it possible to live a life where I'm not hustling for my worthiness. That's the good news. You know how it does that? Because it heals my heart of the fears that cause me to lie. How does it do that? Well, we get a little glimpse of it in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Isn't it fascinating? When the Spirit comes rushing through that room, what's the first manifestation of the Spirit's presence? People's words change. They start talking in languages that they didn't grow up learning. A miracle. And the people here around them, though, they hear the word of God being spoken in their own language. It was a healing of words. Why did that happen? Because when the Spirit comes, he captures the heart and he puts security where there used to be fear. He puts joy where there used to be self-doubt. And when that gets inside your heart, it suddenly starts to work its way on the way out. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Don't you see what he's saying? Something transformational happens when you absorb Jesus's words about you. (laughs) There's a voice inside your head, is there not? 
Tripp, what's his name? Paul Tripp was the one who says that you're the most influential person in your life because no one talks to you more than you. What is that voice saying? Especially on Sunday morning when we open up God's word and we start looking for the gospel. What is that voice saying? Because until I get Jesus' words to me, who on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But by the end of his time there, looked up and said, it's all paid in full. When those words get directed at me, it replaces my fear with joy. It puts security where there was so much self-doubt. And when that happens, all of a sudden it begins to erode my line because I don't have to anymore. (laughs) I don't have to do that every time the word is preached, which means right now. And so the question then becomes, will you believe it? Well, I believe it when the gospel is proclaimed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would say with the apostle, we believe, but we need help with our unbelief. So if there's a way, Lord Jesus, that your spirit can move in us with the exact same power that you gripped those first Christians, we need that. Because, Father, we lie. We lie to ourselves. We lie to our spouses. We lie to our children, our communities. And, Father, the truth is not in us. So we ask that you would make us whole this morning. Make us a beacon of truth in this community so that we might be healed. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.